Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil. He replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little, will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, we need God's uh, inspiration as, and his understanding as we come to a passage like this. 
So, Father God, we thank you that you uh, speak to us, your children. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these words that Jesus himself spoke. And we pray that you would help us to understand. And that you would help us to fill our eyes with you. The Lord who loves us and gave himself for us. And would you help us to live lives that are worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the summer, um, if you've uh, been with us through the 10 o'clock services, we've been thinking about perplexing parables. Stories that Jesus told that have a spiritual meaning which we find often quite hard to understand. And um, this is the last one of that series, although there are some others. So if you'd like to look at others, then please do tell me. Um, But this is the last in the series, and it's certainly one that I struggle with. It's not a comforting one about birds or crops or suns or sheep. But in a very strange way, it focuses on crooked accountants. It seems on the face of it anyway as though Jesus is in some way commending criminal activity or at least teaching that there's some kind of spiritual benefit from a dodgy financial story. Whatever can it mean? Well, I think we need to look at the story again. I think it's helpful to rehearse it because we might not have seen the story at first pass. So let's take a look at it. Scene 1, verses 1 and 2. We have a rich man, a master, who's given responsibility to a manager, a chief steward. You can imagine it today, can't you? The big desk in the director's office, a 180-degree view across the London skyline, a huge mahogany desk and plush furniture. This manager is powerful in his own right because for years he's been given authority and responsibility over his master's funds. He's negotiated contracts. He's made investment decisions. But horror of horrors, he's now accused of dipping his hand in the till, squandering his master's wealth and fortune. So there's a showdown. I don't know how you picture it, Perhaps it's face-to-face, perhaps it's an email that comes across his desk, perhaps it's a phone call. It's an apprentice-type, you're fired moment. The finger goes up and the manager's face goes down. I'll see you later in the day for your exit interview. We'll go through all your accounts then and then you can leave the premises. So pack up your belongings and get your files and your invoices in order. I'll see you later on in the day. Scene two, verses three and four. We see the manager, perhaps in the local bar, nursing a pint of beer, pondering over his next move. What now? What now? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm a white-collar worker through and through. The only thing I know how to do is to manage finances, to fire off invoices, to, to trade. 
The welfare state hasn't been invented yet. And a person in my position, well, I'm not begging. There's no way. I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm not doing that. What am I going to do? He takes another sip of his pint. Then suddenly his face brightens. He puts his drink to one side. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to make as many friends as he possibly can and leave things in the best way he possibly can. So, scene three, verses five to seven. The quiet stillness of the pub is old news. Now it is all action. With just a few hours to go before his exit interview, he's making calls to everyone he knows to come into his office. The name of the game is speed and it's secrecy. He summons all his master's debtors and in each case, as they come to the office, he takes a look at their invoices. He reviews how much they owe. He glances down at the invoices and then he rips them up and he draws up new contracts for each one. What about you? 800 gallons of olive oil? That's a huge amount. Let's call it 400, shall we? 50% markdown, is that all right with you? Not bad. And you, what about you? Oh, a thousand bushels of wheat? Why don't we make it 800? 20% off for you. And the debtors leave their manager, leave the manager with a smile on their face, incredulous at their good fortune. Haven't we done well today? Scene four, verses eight and nine, back in the owner's office. Here we are in the exit interview. And before he hands in his keys and his laptop, the manager must go through the accounts together with the master. And soon, very soon, it's clear that there's a gaping hole. Soon it's very clear just what the manager has done. And what's the master's reaction? Well, I think it's grudging admiration. Because, verse 8, this man has acted shrewdly. Shrewdly, literally, cleverness in self-preservation. I mean, do you see what's happening in this story? Do you see the surprise that must have been going on from all that heard it? This man has not only cheated his master once... He's now cheated him twice. And he's made a whole load of new friends in the process. Friends who are now indebted to him. Friends who are potential future employers or future clients. Well done you, manager. He's making sure his future is secure even in the crisis that confronts him. Grudging admiration. Well done you. Well, that's the story. But what on earth is the lesson? What is Jesus trying to teach us? Well, I think we need to look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. 
I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whatever does it mean? Well, first of all, just because Jesus uses this person um, to teach from doesn't mean that he approves of them. Just think of other examples that Jesus uses. He speaks of an unjust judge. He uses the expression that he will return like a thief in the night. His point is not that God is like the unjust judge or that Jesus is a thief, but there is something in these stories or analogies that teaches us of Jesus or of God's character. So what do we see here that teaches us? Well, I think the key is in verse 2. What is this I hear about you, says the master, right at the start of the story? What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be a manager any longer. I think in some ways the master represents God. And both the master and God see that there will be a day of reckoning, a judgment. Give an account of your management. I cannot make head nor tail of this story unless I believe that one day God will judge. This is the crisis that leads to the master's commendation. Give an account of your management. It's the crisis that focuses the steward's mind. And as Christians, we believe that we will be called to give an account at the judgment and that God has set the day. And so like the shrewd manager, we are to do everything in our power to be focused on a good outcome on that day. As he ended up with friends, with people willing to help him in his life after employment, so we are to be focused on eternity. So we are to be shrewd, to be clever in self-preservation, not for now, but for eternity. On that day, we will be called to account for everything that we've been entrusted with. We are stewards of God's good gifts, just like the manager. Do you remember that verse in Deuteronomy 8, which says, You may say to yourselves, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. All that we have, all that we possess is from the Lord. It is a gift. Our time, our talents, our gifts. But in the context of this parable in particular, our money. The manager is a steward of the master's resources. And so am I. And so are you. Just look at verse 10 to 12 and you'll see that word or a derivative of it, 
entrusted, trusted again and again. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Verse 11, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Verse 12, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What have I been entrusted with? What have you been entrusted with? Just think about your property portfolio, your bank accounts, your status symbols, your pensions, your stocks and shares. Think of all that has been entrusted to you. Think about your time and your giftedness. One day, we too will be asked, give an account of your management. This is the reality of life, and yet I, for one, can go for days without really thinking like that, without really considering the question that's going to be asked of me, and without living my life in the light of that question. In this time of great uncertainty, don't we want to ask all the more, what is this life for? What am I living for? When the markets can move and change my fortune on the back of one political decision, what am I going to do with all that's been entrusted to me? Back in 1885, when the great Lord Shaftesbury died, it was said of him that the poor lined the streets of London in recognition that somebody had died who had set himself to reform society for the good of others. He played a key role in the reform of child labour, in the education laws, in the lunacy laws. He was a major player, uh, the, the, uh, the author, if you like, of many Christian charities. He was a man who stood for social justice And before he died, somebody asked him, how did you do it? How did you work that hard for so long for the good of others? And this was his response. In the last 40 years, I do not think I have passed a waking hour without bringing to mind the second coming of our Lord. I do not think I have passed a waking hour without bringing to mind the second coming of our Lord. You see, he understood verse 9, didn't he? I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He was so focused on the coming day of judgment, on the calling to account for his actions, that he invested everything he had for the eternal prize which awaited. When I'm taking a funeral service, as I stand by a coffin, one of the prayers that moves me most is the committal. And in that prayer, we reflect on the brevity of life. I say these words, for he knows of what we are made. He remembers that we are but dust. Our days are like the grass. We flourish like a flower of the field and when the wind goes over it, it is gone and its place will know it no more. 
Life is short. And it's easy for us to live life just for what's in front of us. But that is a blip on the eternal scale. It's but a grain of sand on a beach or a dot on a line. There is a time coming when, like the shrewd manager, your time and my time will be up. And our money, our resources won't matter anymore. What will happen on that day when God says, now is the time to give an account of your management? This is uncomfortable, isn't it? But it's a fact that Jesus seems to apply the parable first and foremost to our money. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The thing I find most challenging about this is that it it brings Jesus and my faith right to my pocket. Right to my bank account and the use of my credit card and my investment choices. We either serve God or money. We have to choose. And one day we'll discover what choice we've made. Unlike today, in those days, a servant didn't hold down a portfolio of jobs. They served one master uniquely. And Jesus teaches that money loves to be a master. It isn't that in serving money, uh, it's unhelpful to our faith or that it causes just a modicum of damage. Jesus says we can't do it. We can't serve both. And throughout these chapters in Luke, he teaches on it again and again. Think back to Luke 15. We've got the prodigal son. What happens there? Well, the younger son refuses to believe the true character of the father, so he squanders all he has. Luke 16, verse 14, at the end of this uh, section, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And they wouldn't listen to him. Verse 19, we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man mastered by money and forgets the beggar at his gate. And then turn, turn a page to chapter 18, verse 24. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Money matters. Jesus teaches us in this parable that we must have an eternal perspective, a long-term perspective. A wise person will not live for today, not for the short term, not even to ensure a prosperous and smooth retirement A wise person will live and invest their time, their gifts, their activity, and particularly their wealth for eternity. What I'm not saying is that giving away our money to good causes will get us to heaven. Eternal life is a gift from God, paid for by Jesus himself as he hung on a cross for you and I. It's a costly work of grace but we don't pay our way into the kingdom. Christ pays for you. He has paid for you. You need to accept him with open arms and trust him. But what we do with what we've been given, 
the gifts that we've been given to steward, that does matter. And we need an eternal perspective. What goes on in our wallets illustrates what's happening in our hearts. A day is coming when we'll be asked to give an account for our management. The parable of the shrewd manager tells us that it's not too late to, have, to amend our investment strategy and to invest in gospel work. So as we approach communion this morning, let's again give thanks for Christ's payment of himself on the cross for our salvation. Let's look forward again to that day of judgment, that day when we will be called to account, confident that if we trust him, our names are written in the book of life and we are secure in him but soberly knowing that we will also be called to account for those things that we've been given. That all we have is entrusted to us. And let's pray that we may invest for eternity and use all we have for his glory and the growth of his kingdom. Amen.